Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always, and today we have on a returning guest and a friend of mine, Anas Alahaji. But first, can I ask you a favor? That's right. Go to warroommedia.com, sub to the newsletter. You get all of these wonderful podcasts that we're putting out, a bunch, a bunch of podcasts out right there to your inbox. And if you really love us, drop a five-star review. Helps spread the word. Okay, Anash Alahaji is a keynote speaker, energy guru. <laughs> if you follow him on Twitter, which we'll link to, or his website, um, you know that he knows everything it seems to know about the oil and gas and energy space. And with that being said, let's get to the great one, Anas. Anas, it's been far too long since you've been in the war room. It's good to have you back. How are you doing? Thank you. Doing well. Okay. Thanks again. Well, Let's get into it because uh, maybe give us a snapshot. We're recording this on September 19th, 2022. What is the state of the global energy economy? Well, as you know, it's a total chaos uh, almost all over the world, uh, especially in Europe. Uh, but uh, one of the biggest news that we had uh, last week uh, was, of course, uh, OPEC birthday. Uh, OPEC became 62. And uh, OPEC um, now, of course, it's OPEC Plus, uh, is playing a pivotal role uh, in the world today relative to its past 60 years. So in the last 60 years, it's done certain things, it's done something good, done something bad. They have some wrong decisions along the way. Uh, but what we've seen from OPEC in recent years, especially, um, I mean, talking about the last, since 2016, and especially in the last three years and after COVID hit, uh, we've seen kind of a new uh, platform. We've seen new organization with a new vision and the way they acted basically uh, held oil prices increased and recover uh, after COVID. When you say a new vision, what is the new vision versus the old vision? Well, the uh, let me give you two examples here because this is kind of uh, will explain what's going on. Historically, when uh, oil prices, when, when oil demand increased and those countries start increasing their own production to meet the growing demand, they reach, some countries reach a limit and they cannot produce any more. Therefore, they cannot meet their quota on the way up. And what happened historically is the biggest countries of OPEC, those with large spare capacity, they literally infringe on the market share of others and increase their production substantially while the others cannot do anything. The others basically felt, okay, the, other, the, the bigger countries are increasing their production and therefore they are lowering prices or at least preventing prices from going up. And therefore I don't benefit from that cooperation anyway. What we've seen in 2021 was from OPEC plus that the biggest countries in OPEC refused the past. They, they did stick to their quota. They did not infringe on the market of others who couldn't increase their production to reach their quota. This is something new. This constitute a, a change in market behavior. This constitute a change in market structure. And it was very important for the increase in prices that we've seen. Now, forget about the impact of Russia and Ukraine in this case. I'm talking about 
they increased from like $35, $40 to 85. That was mostly caused by, uh, or caused by uh, um, OPEC uh, behavior or the new behavior. So then comes, sorry. Well, yeah, I was gonna say real quick, when, when you're saying they refuse, I've heard some say that they can't. So is it a refusal, no. they can't, is it a combination? No, they can I mean, we are talking about the biggest countries, the biggest countries like Saudi Arabia, UAE, they do have spare capacity. They still have spare capacity. Yes, they can. I mean, if you go back and look at the Saudi production uh, in recent months, they added over a million barrels hmm. while people were saying they, ca they, ca they cannot. So they could have added this one million uh, several months ago, but they did not. They just uh, continued with their quota. And even uh, last month, they produced 11 million barrels a day and their quota was 11 million barrels a day. So is, is this a nuisance of camaraderie? Is it the fear of the shell revolution getting cranked up? Is it well, like, have they seen the light that this is a better way to operate? What, what's going on? It is way, okay, let me go back since we are talking about OPEC's 62nd birthday mm -hmm. here. Uh, let's go back to 1959. OPEC was established in 1960. When uh, the ministers were talking about establishing OPEC in 1959, of course, there were many reasons. But their vision in 1959 basically was, we need to wean ourselves of the dependence on oil. We don't want to depend on oil. So our objective basically is to get rid of oil as fast as possible and become a developed country. But they don't want to give up their wealth away. So they come up with the idea that we need to match supply to demand at all times. Of course, in the last uh, 55 years or so, this never happened. They were not able because they, they used to meet twice a year. Later on, they start meeting four times a year and to have supply match, matches demand all the time, you need monthly meetings like we've seen today. And even the monthly meetings basically are not enough that's why if you go back to the last OPEC meeting, what they did, they give the uh, Saudi energy minister uh, the authority to make a decision and hold meetings at any time. So in a sense, the last meeting is still open because they realized the old vision. The old vision is we need to mass supply to demand all the time. And they are just sticking to the old vision of 1959. I remember when they announced the monthly meeting, I thought that was a very shrewd move, especially where we were. That was at the end of 2020, if I remember correctly, that going in 2021, that they were going to do that. I'm like, well, hey, if you want to try to keep the market somewhat from being wild swings, what better than a monthly way to, uh, to talk about what you're going to do so the market at least can hear what you're thinking uh, compared to two or four times a year? And it seems that that monthly meeting has really changed the dynamics, at least of how they're covered. Um, the meetings don't get as much publicity maybe as they used to because it's more regular, but it also seems maybe has had a good, um, a positive impact for what they're trying to do. And also on the U.S. shale side, if you're in the U.S. shale business, you're constantly hearing what OPEC is going to do. And that might keep you from trying to go wild with production because you know that OPEC is going to do this. And therefore, you can't, you can't full investors or whatever you might want to do uh, to get out there and drill. Would you agree with that assessment or not? When when you started your uh, statement by saying, I remember, I almost 
kind of like heard it like I remember what happened in 1959. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm only I'm only 58. I'm, just under I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm just kidding. Um, uh, since we are talking about OPEC birthday and shale, uh, it is very important for shale producers, anyone anyone who is involved in the oil business worldwide and especially in the US to understand the following. OPEC establishment happened on the 14th of September, 1960. But the announcement was made in May in Taylor, Texas, <laughs> with, a, with the producers, Texas producers present who treated the Venezuelan minister and the Saudi representative uh, as royalties. If you go back to the documents of that conference and the press coverage at that time, they treated OPEC representatives at that time and the announcement with, with joy. I mean, they were super excited that OPEC is going to go and limit production and do this and do this and do this. They were super excited. And, and that's, that's the way it started in 1959. OPEC now went back to its roots of 1959 in thinking about oil, that we need to get rid of oil as soon as possible, but we need to uh, make sure that supply is always matching demand. And also we need to go back to that vision of the Texas producers in, 19, in May 1960, when they welcomed those people. And the reason why, because they realized they have a common interest. If oil prices go up and supply always meeting demand, everyone makes money and you have enough money to invest, you have enough money to grow. And if they end up fighting with each other and just blaming OPEC all the time, blaming the Saudis, blaming this and blaming this, they all lose. And just to be clear, when you're saying get away from oil, are you saying they don't want oil in their economy or are you suggesting that they don't want their economy to be overly dependent on oil production? Correct. Yeah. The last one. Yeah, last one. Uh, is, is they don't want, right? Um, in the last 50, 60 years, we started with almost 90, 95% dependence on oil. Mm -hmm. They were able to manage to reduce that uh, out of the GDP to about 40 to 70%, out of the government budget to about 60 to 70%. That's still a lot of dependence. They mm -hmm. need to reduce that. So if you look at the Saudi vision 2030, for example, they want to limit the role of oil in the economy to 30%. So the idea here is not to cut production. The idea here is not to do away with the oil business. The idea is to grow the other side of the economy where the oil side will shrink. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And that's time. not you meant, but, but in today's world, people say get rid of oil. They think, oh, they want to get oh, rid of Oh, absolutely. You are right. You are, yeah. you are absolutely right. Um, and, and just for folks listening, if you want something like the UFC, who's got a bunch of interest in the Middle East, boxing goes to the Middle East. There's a big push for tourism to come to the Middle East, and that's part of this initiative to diversify the economy, bring concerts, bring the WWE, bring the UFC, bring boxing events, because that's one way you start to chip away at this old dependency. And so you can see that, at least in some of these other areas around tourism, that, they're, that they're, they're, there's a huge push to, um, to bring tourism to the Middle East and concerts. And, 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 and religious tourism, too. Yes, absolutely. So that's one way. So, okay, with that being said, Let's 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 add one more wrinkle to the puzzle here. Let's talk about Russia, just slightly north. Okay, so Russia obviously is tied up with this OPEC contingency, um, but they're not playing nice, depending on your perspective, with the rest of the world. How is that being felt inside of OPEC? Are they okay with it? Do they care? 
Are, are they still able to, to work together despite these differences? I, uh, generally speaking, if you look at everything that's been done since February 24th until today, it seems they are OPEC plus, they are getting along very well on several fronts, whether on the political front or on the economic front, despite the fact that some OPEC plus members got burnt because they were not able to get the grains from Ukraine. Uh, and some of those OPEC plus members have major investment in the agribusiness of Ukraine. And they lost that. But when you look at the larger picture, you can see how those uh, interests within OPEC Plus are aligned. Uh, to give you some examples on this. And, and the Russians understand that too. Uh, what we've seen so far is that Russian oil is going toward Asia, toward India and China. So some Gulf states and other OPEC plus members, they lost market share. But now, OP, now Europe is available. So all they did basically is just change the direction of trade. So the uh, Russia going east and those in the Middle East basically going west. Of course, this is not efficient. This is kind of like the second best or third best choice in the market. It, it, it in, increases the cost. It reduces efficiencies. It's not, the, it's not good for the whole population of the earth, in this case, if you want to look at it this way. But that was the ultimate solution to a crisis. So there is no competition, at least yet, among OPEC Plus members because the amount of oil available to the market is still limited. Uh, and therefore, they are able to switch supplies between Asia and Europe, and they are fine with that. Uh, oil prices remain high. You still uh, remember the Saudi prices are four or five dollars above Brent, so they are still making ninety-five dollars today anyway, and and they are really good with that. Uh, the other issue is the politics of it. The politics of it is we cannot isolate what the Democrats and what Biden said and did about some of those countries in the past and the way those countries those countries are working with Russia. We cannot isolate the facts, the, the, the attitudes toward the war in Yemen and toward uh, other issues in Saudi Arabia, for example, and the, the attitude of Putin and Russia. Let me give you two examples why Russia is very important to OPEC plus and especially to the Gulf countries and to Saudi Arabia. Uh, there was a resolu resolution in the UN about the war of Ye in Yemen against Saudi Arabia. And if that resolution passes, Saudi Arabia would be in big trouble. Who saved Saudi Arabia? Putin. Because Russia is one of the five members, permanent members of the Security Council, and he vetoed that. That was a big gift. Then there was, as you recall, the climate change resolution in the UN. And if that passes, it will be a disaster for the oil producing countries. In fact, it will be a disaster for Texas and any state that depend on oil because that would have been, it was really uh, a bad, badly drafted resolution. Who stood up and vetoed that? It was Putin. At the same time, you have President Biden who is bad-mouthing the Saudi leadership and bad-mouthing oil all the time. So if you are a Saudi leader or a leader of OPEC+, Plus, whom you are going to choose? You have a guy who stood by you and a guy who wants to fight you. So their position, basically, from a political point of view, is very clear. So I haven't, I've seen you, I've been talking some about this, haven't followed it closely. Um, is there uh, a threat um, 
on the U.S. dollar being reserve currency through this time? Can, can it go that far? Or I know traditionally you've held that this is not something that's likely to happen. Is that still your position or has this reshifted it to where the, the dollar? Yeah, let me, let me summarize that. Uh, the dollar is still king, it's still the global reserve currency. Uh, it lost some market share in the world, but it's still dominant. Oil is still priced in dollar. It has been priced in dollar. It is priced in dollar and it will remain priced in dollar for a long time. Uh, so we have no problem with this. I know there are some groups who are just going kind of overboard on the dollar, etc., and the pricing of oil. There are several things they don't understand about the pricing of oil in dollar. First of all, that's the only choice. Why? Because to price oil, which is the largest traded commodity on earth, you need three conditions in a currency, three conditions. The first one is you need liquidity. Historically, if you look since the early 70s until now, the liquidity was only in the dollar to cover that trade. The second one is you need a currency that is relatively stable relative to other currencies. You don't want a currency to, that collapses and you end up with problems. And when you talk about volatility here, when the euro came uh, out later on, it does not fit. Why? Because when you deal with the dollar, you are talking about one government and one central bank, and that's it. Europe, the EU is 28, 29 countries. And we already have seen Brexit, and that influenced the value of the, of the euro. So the euro basically does not meet this condition. And the third condition is you need a widely accepted currency that everyone accepts around the world and the good and the bad who, who uses that currency. And that was historically, that was the dollar. So by default, the dollar is the ultimate uh, uh, machine for, for uh, pricing oil in this case. However, countries can receive their revenues in a different currency based on your, in their interest. So let me clarify the couple of myths here because this is very important to understand uh, because some people made a big fuss out of this. Saddam Hussein did not price his oil in Europe. Saddam Hussein did not ditch the, the dollar in oil pricing. All he did, he has some money reserved by the UN because all the oil sales were sold by the UN and they received the revenues and they refused to give him his money. So he asked them to convert it from dollars to euro. That's it, has nothing to do with oil. The same thing with Gaddafi when he, he, he switched the revenues. The same thing with Venezuela, the same thing with uh, Iran, and now the same thing with Russia. There is nothing priced in ruble, nothing. They are getting revenues in ruble. So oil remains priced in dollar. Now, someone might say, well, hold on. We have a, an exchange in Shanghai, China, where oil is literally priced in yuan. Well, yes, on paper. Why I say on paper? Because the price in the exchange, the price of oil in yuan in the exchange is a mirror image of the dollar pricing after you adjust for quality, you adjust for timing and geographic location. It's a mirror image of the dollar pricing in Dubai market. So a mirror image of the dollar means that everything is still priced in, in dollar anyway. And therefore, oil still priced in dollar 
and we are not going to see that changing uh, in the foreseeable future. So to your point about uh, Gaddafi and to um, uh, Saddam, people have argued that one of the precursors or that kind of led to the U.S. wanting to topple these regimes was, you know, trying to get away from the, the, the petrodollar kind of mentality. And you're saying that that's not really an a complete, a complete nonsense. I'll tell you what, because I, I was involved in this. I knew I've been following this almost on a daily basis. Okay. The war already happened before even Saddam switched to Europe. The uh, oil for food deal happened with full control. Remember the inspectors and all the daily news about the inspectors and all those stuff. All of that happened before the switch to Europe. So you have the war and you have the inspectors and the oil for food deal, all of this before the switch to Europe. Mm. And all the oil sales of Iraq being controlled by the UN and by default by the US. When the US said something uh, they don't like, the UN will stop. So what happened is uh, because of violations and the, because the Saddam regime uh, prevented the inspectors from going to certain sites, the UN stopped paying one third of the revenues because the oil revenues, he was allowed to sell certain amount of oil every month. Uh, and then they will collect the revenues. The revenues will be divided into three different buckets equally. One will go for reparation of Kuwait. One will go to the uh, uh, UN operations and one will go to the government of Iraq. So he has one third of the revenues. And those revenues basically been piling up in dollars. His economics advisors or his economic advisors understood that the dollar is going down and the euro is going up. And the way they thought about it was, hold on just a second. If I'm not going to get this money, at least I can earn some extra by exchanging it to Europe. So they, they, they submitted an application. They asked the UN to change. The UN basically asked the United States. And it was the United States who approved the change. The UN cannot do this on its own without the US approval. And I do have uh, clips of the news basically when the US basically approved, approved this. So why they approve it and then go after him for the same reason they, uh, they, they held him with. Fair enough, okay. And, and the same thing for Gaddafi basically. It, it, it has nothing to do with the switch. The, the sanctions been on Gaddafi forever. Okay, so let's go back to, to Putin and Russia. He's passed out gifts as you said, to the Middle East. Um, obviously, he's favorable with China. Um, we had, you know, we've had guests on last week who was arguing that part of their whole strategy is to deplete the U.S. of its weapons uh, to help China out. And so how is Russia able to survive this long, prolonged, really slow war of attrition? Um, is going into it, it's not as if they have a huge economy. Um, relative, especially to the U.S. And so how are they able to keep this going? Is it just ship, simply they were able to shift their trade lines, as you mentioned, um, or is it their, no, their, their economy is struggling and they can't keep um, this pressure on their economy? It's a fact of life. All the major events in history and all the major events that we've seen in our lifetime, there are always conspiracy theories about them all the time. Just pick up any event, uh, whether a war, an assassination, an explosion, bombing, uh, uh, viruses, whatever. Just pick up any major event and you'll see people talking about conspiracy theory. 
all the time. So this is common. But let's stick to the facts and what we know. Uh, what, what we know is the United States went to two major wars for a very long time, and we lived fine. Uh, your family, my family, and everyone else, basically, we as if the war did not exist in this case. Russia is a big country. Russia is a rich country. And what they've been doing in the last 10 years or so, they, they, they've been among the few countries in the world uh, that uh, built up a massive uh, budget surplus, massive trade surplus, and they ended up basically building a, a, a very large gold surplus in the last 10 years. So even if you forget about the oil revenues and the gas revenues, they've been doing very well in building up those surpluses. That will enable them to stay afloat for a while. Is there any concern that when this is over with them in, the, them in Ukraine, that they won't be able to repair the relations with the U.S.? Well, in politics, everything is possible. So never say never. I mean, look at Germany and look at Japan. I mean, look at the what, what happened between them and the United States and look at the relationship today. So everything is possible. We, we cannot say either, either way. But the issue for me uh, is this. While everyone is fixated with Ukraine, everyone is talking about Putin and Russia, etc., people are not noticing the deterioration that's happening in Europe. Uh, and, and this is really a serious problem. When the life of a European basically become less and less and less in terms of quality, while they were the, the world, the, the golden standard for quality of life. And now it's getting less and less and less and less. And this might continue for a very long time because the energy crisis just started. So what is next? They are already exhausting their, their uh, uh, reserves by giving subsidies to their people. How long they can continue giving those subsidies? And after that, when they need rescue, who is going to come and rescue them? The IMF? Then the IMF is going to choke them just the same way they choke Africa and the poorer nations in this case. So it feels as if the, the final target is really Europe, particularly Germany. It's not even Ukraine or Russia or China. Yeah, that's what, you know, Noam Chomsky, um, last week, he said that, you know, um, that he's a little frustrated, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, more or less the U.S. could negotiate with Putin, they could push for a de-escalation, and they're not, and that the person that's going to pay the most is the European, because the U.S. and, uh, yeah, and the U.K., from his perspective, are not willing to work to de-escalate this situation, and so therefore the Europeans are going to pay the price long-term. Um Absolutely. And the Europeans basically are paying, paying two prices at once, not only the price of the war. You have the price of the war and you have the price of the uh, climate, of their own climate change policies they've been following. So they are paying both. And uh, you add to it the, the uh, energy crisis that's going to escalate over time. And you can realize what's going to happen in Europe. And the problem is, if you look at people in the Middle East or Africa or the poorer nations in Latin America or Asia, those poorer people basically are already accustomed to hardship. Mm. They are accustomed to, their, to, the, to this type of living. Europeans cannot. And if you look at the newest generation, uh, even here in the United States, like your children and my children, uh, those, guy, those guys, if they survive on everything that uses electricity. If the power goes out, their life is out. 
their life, their freedom, everything about their life goes up. What they are going to do then? So I've been following the energy markets podcasting, talking about for about six years now. Um, and it was quite apparent, or at least you've been doing it. You're, you're a few years younger than me. So you haven't been doing it as long as I have, obviously. But uh, for Thank those, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, no, no. Um, but it's, it's quite apparent that the energy policies in Europe were set up for something bad to happen. Obviously, that was without a Russia-Ukraine deal that, that, that they were heading in a direction that could be catastrophic if they weren't careful. This has obviously expedited things and, and put it in the forefront. Um, you keep saying energy crisis is here, it's coming. Um, so let's unpack that regionally. So we have the Europeans you talked about. Obviously, we have a, you know, us here in the U.S. where we're at. Um, and then globally, uh, a continent like Africa, which I have some business interests and do stuff with. When you talk about this energy crisis, what is coming and can it be stopped? When talking about the, the future energy crisis, you are right. Even without the invasion of Ukraine, we are going to go through it. In fact, even if we end up with a recession, uh, even if we have additional supplies, even if Iran comes back, even if Venezuela comes back, even if Nigeria and Libya basically produce at full capacity, they are just delaying the inevitable. It's going to happen. And there are several reasons uh, for that. Let's go back in history first. When we look at innovations and technologies, let's say look at the last 200, 300 years, that's been uh, widely adopted by the world. Those technologies have certain characteristics until they were widely uh, adopted. So when you look at horse and carriages versus a car, that was a major event in history. And why horse and carriages disappear and cars took over throughout the world? Because car basically, had, first of all, it give freedom, freedom to people, including freedom of mobility. And at the same time, it saved time. So you need freedom and time as, as the essence of, su of success of those new uh, discoveries, these new things, etc. Now you go to moving from landline phone to smartphone it's exactly the same thing it gives us more freedom and it gives us free mobility of course uh, part of that freedom and at the same time it saves time now look at what we are doing with the new energy technologies that people are spending a lot of money and they want us to switch from the fossil fuel nuclear etc to them the first fact of life is wind turbines are more than 100 years old. So anyone who think they are new, they are not new. If you look at the solar energy and you look at the panels, they are as old as the wind turbines. So they are not new. Electric vehicles are at least 30 to 40 years older than gasoline vehicles. So these are old technologies that existed but did not survive because of their problems. It took major government intervention worldwide with the spending of trillions of dollars basically to push them through in the markets. And because of this, now let's compare because people are saying, oh, we are going to see the change and the shift to electric vehicle the same way we've seen change from horse and carriage to cars. No, that's not the case because the conditions that I mentioned are not met. How an electric vehicle is going to save me time? 
how electric vehicle is going to give me more freedom? So that's not correct. The same thing when you look at intermittent, intermittent energy, you are stalling me. Mm. Okay. While the energy that is there for 24 seven basically is moving me forward. So if you go and you want to study historical trend, historical trend are very clear. We need to move toward more technologies that give me more freedom, including um, mobility. And I mean, look at all the apps and all the internet things sure. where we can work from home. I can go build a cabin in the mountains and work from there. I can go to the middle of the ocean or work on, on a lake. Uh, mm -hmm. Why people love that? Because of that. Mobility, freedom. Uh, within that, we have the freedom of mobility. And at the same time, it saves time because I don't have to drive to work and get stuck in, con in, in congested roads, etc. cetera. Uh, so that's why they become wide, widely spread. Uh, so this is a fact of life that the Europeans did not pay attention to. And if you look at farther details, we are really facing some major uh, problems because of the mismatch between the speed of getting rid of fossil fuel nuclear and the speed of implementing the uh, uh, renewable energy. There was a big mismatch. That's why Europe basically have a crisis. Remember, the energy crisis in Europe uh, started like four or five months before the invasion of Ukraine. And when prices, when we read, when we had uh, record natural gas prices, we had record uh, uh, electricity prices, that was before the invasion because of this mismatch. My problem, my personal problem is, and, and I want to clarify this because this is a very important point. I am for the use of all energy sources because energy demand is skyrocketing and we don't have enough sources. So we need to use all energy sources, including solar and wind and uh, uh, all the uh, geothermal and hydro and nucle nuclear and fossil, everything. We need all, all of that. So I am not against solar and, and wind, period. I am not against electric vehicles at all because we need all types of technology for transportation if we want to maximize our security. And we, know we need the ultimate mix. What I am against basically is the hype of solar and wind and renewables and the hype of, of uh, uh, electric vehicles and others. So it's the hype basically that we are against. We are not against those technologies because we do need those technologies. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know of anyone who's um, in, in kind of our position who disagrees with that sentiment, right? But I am holding a book up right here. I don't know if you can see it. It's called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And this whole book is arguing, you know, all the methods that they should do to get rid of fossil fuels. And when you read it, it's like you want to send us back to the Stone Age. And so, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about U.S. oil production. And they were saying, well, you know, we don't need to import oil, this, that, and the other. I said, well, hold on. Hold on. I don't look, I haven't looked at recent numbers, but U.S. consumes about 20 million barrels a day. We're producing, let's call it 11 to 12, somewhere in that range. Um, how do you make up that 8 million barrel a day deficit? Not only from a production standpoint, the materials, the labor, the technology, all, you know, it's just not, you, you can't snap your fingers and, and do it. And, and they're like, oh, I, I didn't realize that those are the numbers. I said, yeah. So before we start advancing these ideas and hyping ideas, we, we have to stop and think about what would it look like for the U.S. to live 
on a 10 to 12 million barrel a day oil budget. <laughs> Fundamentally different than a 20, minute, 20 million barrel a day oil budget. Well, a uh, couple of things here. You, uh, you said that everyone agree with me on this. The no, no, every, is, everyone in our in our kind of circle, like like, like yes, you, yeah, when you say this, it's like yes, that's that, that's the most okay. obvious but thing. When you, when you speak that, when you speak to environmentalists, basically they don't agree. And the irony is, and this happened to me twice, uh, when you agree with one of them, they go crazy. They get angry because you agreed with them. You are not supposed to agree with them. You are supposed <laughs> to be the boogeyman all the time. Mm -hmm. And and that's another uh, another uh, problem. But the issue here is they, if you really want to talk about fossil fuel, and again, I, I reiterate what I'm talking about. We need all energy sources, including solar and, and wind. But when we talk about fossil fuel, and we talk especially about oil in particular and oil and gas, we should focus on the net impact, not only on the ills of the oil and gas industry, because the benefits on the other side are just amazing by any standard. Yes. The only reason why we have whales in the ocean today because of the oil industry. <laughs> the only reason why we have some people uh, living today because of medications that be made from oil and gas. And the only reason why we are enjoying the life the way we are enjoying it because of oil and gas. Yeah. So let's count, let's focus on the net in this case and see how bad the situation is and instead of only focusing on this and this and this. Look, people in the oil industry, we have uh, the, the industry employs about uh, almost 485,000 people. That's, these are direct employment. But if you look at the bigger impact, it's in millions. But the direct empl uh, employment is about 485,000 people. And uh, if, you, uh, if you look at those uh, people and their role in the economy, because everything involves oil and gas, they have the highest value added than any other workers in the economy when you start looking at what, what they do. But on the other side, people misunderstand the fact that, yes, we have a large number of people in the oil industry, and with this large number, you always have bad apples. Mm. And the industry is against them. And for those who follow me on Twitter, I exposed several oil companies and others myself because they did not do a good job in plugging an oil well or, or because of uh, seepages or because of oil spill or others. So we, we in the oil industry, we reject the bad behavior of the bad apples. It's not like we are happy with it. We are against it. Absolutely. It, I've made this point in other shows before that if you gave me my way as far as how landowner rights would actually work, oil companies would be petrified to actually spill oil on someone's property because I would, I would give so much power to landowners that if that, if that well wasn't plugged, they would pay dearly. This current system is, I think, uh, a different, different discussion for a different day. But yes, let me, let me tell you this is in a different way. Uh, there are now companies um, that their, their job is to clean the reputation of, of companies and persons. So if a person has very bad news about him in the, uh, on the internet, they can hire those companies to delete those items. Mm -hmm. Okay. And some people do that. Some companies do that too. And that's why those companies exist that they, they like, they clean the reputation uh, of those individuals and companies. 
just think about it. How much ExxonMobil is willing to pay to wipe out the memory of the Valdez oil spill? Mm. Or for PP basically to uh, wipe out the horizon, uh, uh, the, the memories and everything on the web. Uh, the, uh, of course, this, this is the explosion that happened in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. They are willing to pay hundreds of millions of dollars just to wipe it out, but they know the, the, the event was so big, there is no way whatever money they spend is not enough. Right. Okay. So the idea here is they do care about their reputation. It's not like they are bad guys and they are dancing because they saw the explosion uh, in the waters or because uh, an oil tanker uh, uh, ended up with an oil spill. This is a disaster. A CEO and others basically will not sleep for several nights because of this, they will be following on it. So the, the, to kind of demonize those people and demonize the oil industry, yes, they do mistakes, but they are not happy with those mistakes. And if anyone think that anyone in the oil industry basically are happy to see those oil spills and explosions, they really need to get some treatment. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to the energy crisis though. So how bad is it going to get for the Europeans? Can it be stopped? I think you said earlier, it's probably too late. It, will it impact the U.S.? So what, what are we, because when we say crisis, people, they think, oh my gosh, are people going to starve? Are we going to see mass migrations out of Europe? You know, you, your mind can run wild and maybe that's what you're getting at, but how bad could this get? Uh, first of all, for this winter, uh, the Europeans, with the help of the U.S., uh, they are able right now to move uh, uh, from a disaster to crisis. So in a sense, the situation improved for this winter with the help of the U.S. again uh, from uh, disaster to crisis. So they still have a crisis, but they can manage. And the reason why they can manage, because two other items been added to the agenda that we did not expect last year. Uh, last year, you come to me or others and tell them, look, Europe is going to go back to coal. And many of us will say there is no way. Well, now they are back. And you tell me or tell others last year that we are going to end up with energy conservation where people are going to take cold showers and they are going to eat cold meals and they are going to do this and lower the thermostat or increase the thermostat and do all that stuff. And I would say, no way. Well, it's already happening. We already have seen people are not able to pay their bills in Europe and that's already happening. So between coal and the conservation of energy, and then you add to it the government subsidies that, again, another thing we did not expect because the subsidies to fossil fuel right now in Europe is almost unprecedented. So you add all of those, all of those basically helped Europe move from uh, uh, a disaster to crisis. This is for the winter. But I'm talking about the next few years. What we've seen so far and what's going to happen in the winter, this is just an exercise for what's going to happen uh, in the future. And the reason why, first of all, as you all know, we, have, uh, we don't have enough investment in the oil and gas sector in recent years. So since 2015, investment did not match what we need. And the shortage in investment is so huge that we cannot remedy this in a couple of years. It will take several years if we want to remedy it and suppose that we don't have ESG and we don't have uh, those people at the UN. But the problem is not here. The problem is not the fact that we have uh, uh, investment shortages. Uh, even when we talk about renewable energy, we don't have enough investment in renewable energy. 
So the, the shortage in investment or the lack of investment is all over the energy spectrum, including nuclear, hydro, and coal. But the biggest problem is not here. The biggest problem is the failure of some of the green policies that no one is counting on. And it's going to happen, and it's already happening. We've already seen it since last year. The failure of the green policies or some of the green policies by default means increase in demand for oil, gas, and coal. But I'm already short without even counting for the failure. So you can see how the gap between supply and demand is going to get larger and larger and larger. And because none of the outlooks are counting for the impact of the failure of the green policies, they are going to hit us really hard. And all of a sudden, because the International Energy Agency, for example, is not counting on it. They are painting this rosy picture. We are going to do this and this and this. It's a complete lie. So what and is to that close mean? that gap, the, to close that gap, suppose that we are going to end up with major attitude change worldwide, we need several years. And several years, a lot of people are going to die because of that. What does that mean for oil prices then in the next three to five years? Now, oil prices are going to go up, but the fact is because of demand destruction and because of demand decline. Uh, many of your audience and others on Twitter already noticed that I always talk about demand destruction and demand decline. These are two separate things. Demand destruction, we cannot recover that, period. And demand destruction comes out of uh, uh, change in technology and change in consumer tastes. And changing consumer taste comes out of a crisis like this. If I cannot afford it, I cannot afford a big house, I cannot afford a big car, etc. I'm going to change my attitude, period. I'm going to change everything. Uh, so that's demand destruction. Demand decline is mostly related to the economic situation, mostly related to income and prices. So prices are high, my income is lower, and therefore I can reduce my demand. But once prices decline and my income goes up, my demand goes up. So the income, the, the decline in demand can be recovered, but the demand destruction cannot be recovered. So what we are going to see basically is we are not going to see oil at 500 or $400, et cetera, these numbers, no. And the reason why, because of demand destruction, we are going to reach a point where people cannot afford to pay for it. And therefore they will suffer until they find substitutes in this case. So oil prices are going to go up, but I don't think we are going to reach very high numbers like some people are talking about simply because demand is going to demand destruction is going to cap uh, is going to cap that so is it a good time in the US to be in the oil industry or is it a bad time because well, uh, you well, know I, I, we, as you know we cannot give investment advice here no, I mean I mean as a worker uh, like a service company working like oh absolutely you- absolutely in fact I uh, um, I give two presentations at two universities uh, in Africa, one in Nigeria and one in Ghana. And uh, I told the students, I told them, look, this is your lifetime opportunity to go into petroleum engineering or geology or some chemical engineering, finish, go finish your graduate studies in the United States and stay in the United States. You'll get the green card and you'll get, get citizenship because the demand for those type of expertise is, is going to be so high. And uh, let me put it this way. People will be shocked at this. Right now, as we speak, if you go to certain 
petroleum engineering departments at some of the famous universities in this field, you are not going to find a single American. So from where we are going to fill the gap. Yeah. But Africa has a huge need too. So correct. But, but the, because of the living standards and the difference in wages, sure. different lifestyle, those guys basically are better off just coming to the United States. So uh, I, I think this is a great opportunity for the younger generation to specialize in one of those fields because the energy crisis is going to uh, uh, be big and for a long time. And for those who are worried and they want to hedge, uh, just get double major. <laughs> and, and you can get double major in various things. And you can get, let's say, petroleum uh, uh, engineering and, and data science. Mm -hmm. And if uh, you have a problem with the petroleum industry, you can go to data science so in any field. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a handful of questions with the remaining minutes we have. Um, this more, a little bit more rapid fire. Give me the bear case for oil. What, what would have to happen for oil to... Um, sink pretty low we'll say sub 60 just to pick a number sub 60 long term uh a major a major recession uh china attacking taiwan and the united states defending taiwan that's very bearish by the way people think it's very bullish no it's exactly oh, the it's, opposite it's, it's very bearish yeah it is very bearish uh that will take us down but it is very clear that uh opec plus is going to defend 91st in case of severe recession, they cannot defend 90. Prices will go down, but they can go back to what they did in, 19, in, in 2020. Remember in 2020, when they cut production by 9.7 million barrels a day, mm -hmm. they are able to do this. Again, we have a new, now a new uh, uh, entity and with a new vision, and they are going to cut production again. And the Russians have already told uh, uh, other OPEC plus members that they are willing to cut production in case of recession by up to two to three million barrels a day. And the recession will be God's gift to Putin, by the way, because if they're going to cut two to three two million, that will save their resources and save their energy sector until after the war. I was hoping you weren't going to say China invades Taiwan because that, that was my next question. What would happen if China invaded Taiwan and the U.S. defended? So you've already, once again, well, you snoozed. <laughs> <laughs> You're two steps ahead of me. Okay, when when will Russia Ukraine finally come to an end? If you had to make a prediction, like is this something that we have to deal with for another year? Do you feel like this is is this sustainable for you said earlier long term wars? Is some something that Russia can can sustain for year over year? It is very hard to tell, and I don't have an answer. Uh, but from my uh, readings over the years, basically, I uh, learned something. And probably you read it in some of the books here that you read, that we, we move from a high-intensity war to a low-intensity war. Mm -hmm. And probably that's the most likely scenario, that we move to uh, a low-intensity war. Okay. You mentioned a global recession. Obviously, there's a lot of fears, apart from China invading Taiwan. FedEx came out and said that they're seeing bad signs in the economy. How likely is it that we are on the precipice of a global recession? The problem is, I know... People are along the political lines. Those who are against Biden, they want to take it to the extreme when they talk about recession. Those who are uh, pro-Biden, basically, they want to talk about, oh, we have mixed signals, etc. Um, I'm, I'm being apolitical here, apolitical, completely apolitical. The problem is because of COVID and because of what happened in the energy sector, uh, not everything is even in the economy. We have things going up, things going down. 
because of those developments. And for the things to settle where we end up with very clear recession, for example, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all this stuff, we, we need the energy sector to settle. We need the impact of COVID to settle. We need the government to stop giving subsidies. But by the government's pouring a lot of money into in form of subsidies for food and fuel, and because of the energy sector, the, the boom in the energy sector, and because of the impact of COVID that we are still having problems with, uh, it is very hard to be certain about this anyway, because it's mixed signals all over. Uh, and I'm being apolitical here. Okay. How big of a deal is the SPR release? Big, big. And let me tell you some of the confusion about the SPR. We have historically the government released between 30 to 60 million barrels a day during crisis. That was a small amount and the impact was very small. So when the Biden administration announced the release, a lot of people said, well, there will be no impact. It's not going to have an impact on this. I was among the people who said it will have no impact on gasoline prices. And that part on the gasoline prices was correct simply because of the refining sector. But the idea here is, if you go back 20 years ago, I wrote uh, uh, an article at that time, and I specifically outlined the fact that, for, okay, here are the nine reasons or the nine issues that uh, people differ on, and you go through each one of them. Some of them are political or along the political line, some of them along the economics line. And you find out that you, the SBR release has to be huge and has to be done in a certain way. And the language has to be done in a certain way to be effective. That was 20 years ago. And I was stunned when the Biden administration announced the 180 million, everything was to the letter, everything. Remember that President Biden, when he stood in front of everyone, he said, we are releasing 1 million barrels a day. He did not say 180 over six months. Because that language is very important. And it's 180 million. You know, 180 million, that thousands of shale whales, by the way. Yeah, that's a lot of, that's a lot of oil. Yes. So the, the impact was huge. And the impact was like this. First, it prevented oil prices from going above $140. And this $140 based on my model. Some of our colleagues basically are saying that it prevented oil prices from going to 200. We don't know, but could be. So first, the impact was to prevent oil prices from continuing going up. And then after it built up, after a few months, it started pushing prices down. And it kept going down, the SPR kept going down until we reached a threshold where the substitution between the SPR and commercial inventories started. And this is another important point because and, and people must understand that we stayed over 100 years without strategic petroleum reserves. We went to World War I, we went to World War II, the Vietnam War, the Korean War. It's all those wars. We had no SPR, and we, we, we survived without any problems. The SPR basically was uh, uh, introduced in 1977. And the other issue-related issue is uh, I strongly believe that it is a subsidy to the oil industry because without the SBR, the oil industry has to have more commercial stocks and they have to literally uh, take some capital and put it uh, in those stocks and they would rather use that capital somewhere else. So the taxpayer literally held 
and subsidize the oil companies. And probably the, the American taxpayer subsidized the whole world through the SPR. Because if it really prevented oil prices from going to 140 to 200, then it, it really, literally, it was a subsidy to the whole world mm. yes. in this case. So uh, uh, we started seeing a build in, in commercial inventories because the oil literally got transferred to commercial inventories. If we do away with SPR com completely, we are going to see commercial inventories increase substantially because that's the only way the oil companies uh, can manage their operations. But they are relying on the SPR because every time they have a crisis, they, they call the government and say, help me out, send me 5 million barrels. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the, you, you mentioned earlier that 90, I think you said you have the term, the sweet spot. It was between 67 and 75. I think Ben, 90 is the current sweet spot. Is that a correct understanding from what you've no, said? No, no. The sweet okay. spot has nothing to do with, with market prices. Mm. The sweet spot is, uh, is where the consumers and producers are happy and the whole world is happy. If it's still prices, 67 to 75 then. It, it, it is almost. It changes every day, but it's almost with, still within that range. I got you. Uh, so it has nothing to do with, with, the, with the market prices. If prices go below that, someone is going to suffer. If mm -hmm. prices go above that, someone is going to suffer. And so right now within that range, no one is going to suffer. Everyone is happy. It is very clear that OPEC Plus members, they want prices above $90. And they are going to, uh, to uh, defend 90. That has nothing to do. The sweet spot is still close to that range, which was 68 to 75. And the fact is, if we go back even to the low 80s, everyone will be better off. The producers and the consumers will be better off. And even the oil equities will be better. And one of the reasons why, because if you go to a board meeting today and oil prices, I'm just going to make this up, oil prices at 130, they are scared to death that the market is going to crash because yeah. of demand destruction. Right. They say, okay, I'm not going to invest. Right. But if prices are around 80, probably they will go and invest because they know prices are going to go up now instead of going down. Mm. And so OPEC is defending the 90. And what you mean by that is they're keeping their production at a certain level so that it doesn't, um, it doesn't drop beneath that. Or necessarily So let, let me explain this point yeah. because this important point is, is very important. OPEC ministers will never talk about prices. They are not going to talk about prices. They are going to talk about balance of supply and demand. But the fact is, in the back rooms, when no one is there, the price, at least it's in the back of their head. So when they talk about defending uh, uh, or they talk about production cut, they label that as to improve the balance between supply and demand. They are not going to talk prices. But we can translate that into prices. I got you. Okay, last two questions. Um, for a long time, especially pre-pandemic, crude quality was a big topic of discussion. Um, uh, I quite often hear people saying, ah, oh, the U.S. was energy independent under Donald Trump. And I say, no, that's not true. Is the crude quality issue still an issue in the U.S.? Still alive and well, not only in the U.S. worldwide. To give you some examples on this, why did the Biden administration ask the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, UAE, to increase production to compensate for Russian oil and did not ask US producers right. for exactly the same reason, because the quality needed in Europe is not the light, sweet crude. So this is kind of very important uh, issue to remember. So crude quality still matters. Now, if you look at the change in trade direction, what's really determining the trade direction is what refiners can refine in terms of crude quality. Mm -hmm. 
Because what the advantage of switching oil to Europe to a certain refinery that cannot handle that crude? So what, what, what is determining the trade right now is really crude quality uh, again. Uh, here I would like to point out, I have uh, my weekly column in Arabic is going to appear uh, probably in one hour or so. Uh, and the, the whole issue in this column, basically, I'm discussing how the share revolution or, or the political impact of the share revolution. And people think, oh, well, shale is not going to grow, etc. It doesn't matter because the impact is felt worldwide. There was no way on earth that the President Trump was going to impose sanctions on Iran on the fourth quarter of 2018 without the share revolution. There was no way on earth President Trump was going to impose sanctions on, on Venezuela without the share revolution. And there was no way that the US will take this strong stand against Putin and supply all this LNG and all this oil to Europe without the share revolution. So the political impact of the share revolution is massive worldwide. Last two questions. You, you said that it's the great time for people to get a petroleum uh, degree and to be in America. It, it, is U.S. production, has it peaked? It, can it go above 12, 13 million barrels a day? Is it going to go down? I know there's an investment angle that has to be there, but it's practically, there's a lot of debate about the tier one acreage, how much is left, how many goodwills are left. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, since you already said that you are older than me, then you remember <laughs> all, the, <laughs> all the discussions about the peak oil a few years ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And everything being used to support the idea of peak oil production is being used today about shale. Almost the same ideas. But we already knew a long time ago and during all those debates that it is really about investment. It's not about the availability of resources. It's not about geology. I mean, look at all the oil we got from shale. Look at the, all the oil we got from Guyana, for example. And when you put them in the corner and you tell them about Guyana and, and uh, shale, what the response? Oh, this is not conventional. We were talking about conventional. Right. Okay, well, they're just run away. Well, and that's, that's what I would say that the potential here, and I'm not saying it's going to happen next year, but there's massive amounts of oil reserves in Africa. And so at some point, you could turn those on or start... I mean, you know, the pipeline theft alone in Nigeria is just nauseating. But Why? We don't have to go that far. Look at California. We still have massive amount of oil in California, but because of regulations, we cannot invest in California. Mm. And I, I personally lost massive amount of money because of the regulations in California. So it's not about the availability of investment. Inv investment is there. It was killed by the government of California. Okay. So here in the United States, we still have a lot of oil. It just we need the proper regulations to help investors. Okay, last question. You said earlier, if someone would have told you this was going to happen, you wouldn't have believed it um, because it was such a radical shift. What would be one thing that someone would tell you right now that's going to happen in 2023 that you go, no, that's not possible, that we can at least look for? Like, oh, man, wow, this is a sudden shift. Uh, collapse of OPEC+. Plus. Collapse of OPEC. Okay, I'm with you. <laughs> that seems that seems highly unlikely. So <laughs> I'm with you there. Um, okay, any um, final words for someone like maybe Big Warren who's jealous that he couldn't be here today? Well, he got to realize that he 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 should be on. I mean, he can. There is enough technology to change to change his picture and change his voice and change all of that stuff. So without 
anyone knowing about him, he can just, you know, uh, uh, use those apps and, and come in and he will appear uh, like Tom Cruise and uh, with the voice of, of uh, someone else. Okay, Anas, it was so good to talk to you once again. It's been far too long, uh, but the world's crazy. So I want to get your perspective on it. So thank you for your time today. Well, drop by. Let's go to that barbecue place again. I've been, I've been thinking about that the whole time you've been talking. Okay. All right. It was so good. All, All right. right. And so we'll, we'll link to your Twitter. Anywhere else you want to send folks to? Uh, yes. Basically, uh, as you know, I'm returning back to the speaking circles. So I'm going back now into uh, several speaking trips. Uh, people can go to my website, which is my first name, my last name, A-N-A-S-A-L-H-A-J-J-I. Uh, there is an application form there. If they want to uh, fill it out quickly, it'll take three minutes to fill it out. Uh, if they are asking about the speaking engagements. And people can follow me on Twitter. It's at Anas Alhaji, again, A-N-A-S-A-L-H-A-J-J-I. I put a lot of uh, information there. And my final comment is for those who are listening, uh, I know some people unfollowed me because I put a lot of stuff in Arabic. Look, Twitter has this trans translate function at the bottom left of every tweet. And I put some really high quality and sometimes breaking news that does not exist anywhere in the world in Arabic. So all you get to do when you see a tweet in Arabic, just click on it, then click on translate and you'll get it in the language of your browser that you are on. All right, Anas, you are as always a gentleman and a scholar. It is good to talk to you, friend. Thank you. Okay, there it is. The great one, Anas Alhaji. Hope you enjoy it. Go be sure to follow him on Twitter. And while you're there, follow your boy as well. And we'll talk real soon.